The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being with us this morning. We are continuing our study this morning in the Gospel of John. Um, We are in the second half of this book, which is known as what the book of glory. Thank you. Somebody knew that, right? We've we've gone over this a few times. The second half is the first half is the book of signs. We saw the, the signs that were given to demonstrate the seven signs that demonstrate the reality of who Christ is. The second half is the book of glory. In these chapters, Yeshua accomplishes his return to the Father. Now, unlike the book of signs, the book of glory is addressed only to those who have believed. And that's important. You know, we said that over and over, but you got to hang on to that, okay? The, the signs were given for unbelievers. To, they'd see these signs and say, wow, that's amazing. That, there must be something to this. There must be something there. They demonstrated the deity of Christ. The book of glory, he is talking to his disciples. Chapters 13 through 17 form a division which we call the upper room discourse. All right? This text, these chapters, this teaching is not something that's contained in the synoptics, and it represents four chapters of teaching of our Lord to his disciples. This is the final hours of his life. And we've said that over and over. He's in the last like 18 hours of his life and he's spending it teaching his disciples. He's going to end this teaching in chapter 17 with a, with a prayer. His high priestly prayer. Now, this section is about the subject of love. It's the love of Yeshua for His own. Now, the second part of this upper room discourse could be divided up this way. John 15, 1-17 is dealing with the vine and the branches. 15, 18 through 16, 4 describes the world's hatred for Yeshua's disciples, for him and his disciples. And then 16, 4b through 15 return to the theme of Yeshua's departure and the paraclete. And finally, John 16, 16 through 33 focuses on the joy and understanding that Yeshua's return will bring to his disciples. The first 17 verses of chapter 15 can be be divided up this way. The first six verses that we're going to look at this morning present the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And then verses 7 through 17 make the application of this metaphor. The theme of this section is clearly fruit bearing, right? The word fruit occurs eight times in these 17 verses, and it only occurs two other times in the gospel. So that's the focus on these verses, these 17 verses, fruit-bearing. Now, some think that the teaching on the vine and the branches is a parable. You read some guys and say, this is a parable that our Lord gave. I don't think this is a parable. I don't see it that way. I see this teaching as a metaphor. And I think that's important. A parable uses a story to convey a deeper message. Whereas metaphors refer to one subject, the vine, the branches, while actually 
The subject is something else entirely. The subject is our relationship with Christ. Alright? And I think this distinction is important because in a parable, the details are not really important. Alright? J.C. Ryle states this, The general lesson of each parable is the main thing to be noticed. The minor details must not be tortured and pressed to an excess in order to extract a meaning from them. Now, see, what we have in our text is not a parable. It's didactic teaching using a metaphor, and I think the details are important. So if it was a parable, then okay, we're just looking for the central theme. We don't care about the details. But this is a teaching. It's a metaphor, but he's teaching us. And so I think the details are important. Now, to some degree, this vine and branches metaphor is similar to what Paul will develop of the head and the body metaphor that Paul uses, where Christ is the head and believers are the members of the body. Both metaphors bring out the vital and necessary connection that exists between Christ and believers. Now, it is my understanding that this passage on fruit bearing deals with the subject of discipleship. Fruit bearing, he's going to tell us, is a mark of discipleship. Look at verse 8. We're not going to get to this today, but next time. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. See, when you bear fruit, that's a proof of discipleship. So discipleship and fruit bearing, they go together. Now here's the problem that a lot of people have, all right? Most people do not see a distinction between a Christian and a disciple. They read those two words and they just think, well, they're synonymous. Same thing, right? But they're two different terms describing two different groups of people. A person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the Gospel of Christ. At that moment, they're placed into the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They're indwelt by God. They're as sure of heaven as if they were already there. They are in Christ. And the Scriptures make it quite clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. But the Scriptures also teach that discipleship is costly. Salvation is our birth into the Christian life. Discipleship is our education and maturity into the Christian life. For example, let's compare a couple texts. John 3.16, you all familiar with this verse? You ever heard this one before? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay? So you got whoever believes has eternal life. Eternal life is a gift of grace. You see any cost involved in that? If you believe, you get eternal life. You see any labor? You see any agony? Now notice this. Luke 14.33 So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. You see a difference there? One has to renounce all that he has so he can be a disciple. The other has to believe so he can have eternal life. Discipleship is a call to follow Christ. Forsaking everything else and following Christ. Can this be talking about the same thing as John 3.16? I don't see how. And if you say they're talking about the same things, then 
you know, how do we know what God's telling us? Because He seems to be very confusing here. The word disciple is from the Greek word mathetes. It literally means a learner or a follower. Now, in the Hebrew culture of that day, they had disciples, Talmudim, and rabbis. And someone would want to follow a rabbi. They'd want to be his Talmudim. And in that culture, a disciple wanted more than anything else in the world to be just like their rabbi. That's why they followed them. And when they wanted to you know, get a rabbi or begin to follow a rabbi, they would go to that rabbi and they would ask the question, Rabbi, do you think I can be like you? And if the rabbi thought they could, he would take them on as a Talmudim and he would teach them. But that's the idea of a disciple, is to be like the rabbi, to be like the teacher. And a disciple, a disciple remains a disciple as long as he or she continues to follow the teacher. When a person stops following, he or she ceases to be a disciple. Mathetes is the most common designation in the Gospels for followers of Christ. Outside of the Gospels, it's found only in Acts. But I see discipleship as the same thing as being a follower, being a learner of Christ, as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it has begun. So you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ, Christ calls you to follow Him. Not everybody does. All Christians are called to be disciples. They're called to be learners. They're called to be followers. But many just are not going to pay the price. It's too costly to follow Christ. A follower of Christ is going to be someone who lives like Christ lived. They're going to respond like Christ. They're going to act like Christ. They're going to do, that's what we're called to be. In our text, Yeshua is addressing His followers, His disciples. It wasn't to unsaved people that He is speaking. It's not a mixed audience. It's believers and believers alone and that He says this. Now, the central theme of chapter 15 is not salvation. You got that? It's not salvation. Why? What's the point of telling saved people how to get saved? Okay? Now, if you're in a Baptist church, I understand that's how it works. But, you know, you want people saved every week. Same people sometimes. But listen, he is talking to his children. And he's not dealing with how salvation is obtained He's not dealing with the danger of losing salvation. The theme of this chapter is fruit-bearing. It's discipleship and the conditions of fertility. Look what he says. He starts out in verse 1, I'm the vine, my father is the vine dresser. Then in verse 5 he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So Yeshua says he's the vine, the father's the vine dresser, and the people he is addressing, his disciples, they're the branches. Now, the imagery of the vine underscored the importance of fruitfulness in the Christian life and the truth that this results not from human achievement, but from one's relationship with Christ. That's what brings forth the fruit. The vine is the source of everything for that branch. 
And in order for the branch to produce fruit, all it has to do is be connected to the vine. As long as it does that, it'll bring forth fruit. Now we saw in our last study that Yeshua used the vine metaphorically of Himself. In the Old Covenant, national, political Israel were continually identified with the metaphor of the vine. Israel was the vine. So you can hardly escape the inference that Yeshua viewed Himself as the fulfillment of Israel. It's clearly with unfruitful and guilty Israel that He contrasted Himself as the true vine. I'm the true vine, He's saying. In other words, Israel, that's not a good vine. That's an unfruitful, barren, worthless vine. So Yeshua comes along and says in effect that a person is no longer part of God's people because they're joined in national Israel. The only way a person now is related to God is when he is joined to the true vine. To me, the Christ. And then he says, my father is the vine dresser. Now, the word vine dresser here is from the Greek word georgos, which literally means an earth worker. It's basically one who's a farmer. We call them a farmer. In this context, it refers to the vine dresser who's an expert at caring for the vines. As the owner of the vineyard, he expects fruit from the vine. That's why he planted it. I want to get fruit. I plant this. It's not something you know that's attractive. I'm planting it for fruit. Now what's interesting in this vine, Yeshua being the vine, His Father being the vine dresser, Yeshua is never portrayed as independent from His Father in this Gospel. They're always cooperating. They're always working together. So the Father is taking care of the vine. He's the vine dresser. He's making sure this vine brings forth the fruit. And in verse 2, He says, Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, most of the disciples would have understood the basics of viticulture. You like that word? That's a cool word, isn't it? Viticulture? That's the caring for vines, okay? <laughs> the, the disciples would have understood it. Or they lived in this kind of world where there's grapevines all over the place. Every year, the vine and the branches would have to be pruned back. Several times a year to bring forth more growth. Because sucker shoots... Uh, weeds would get entangled. These things had to be removed. The farmer would also cut out the branches that had died and aren't producing fruit. You have to take care of the vine or it's just not going to produce. Now Lazarus is using a play on two similar sounding Greek verbs which we translate here as take away and prunes. Takes away is from the Greek word airo. And prunes is from the Greek kathairo. You can kind of hear the difference there. Iro, kathairo. Now in the next verse, he's going to use the adjective for clean that comes from the Greek katharos. These words are all related. They cor- that corresponds to the second verb and unites the idea of cutting with cleansing. See, the word prunes there and the word clean are related in the Greek. Because it's the same idea. The pruning is for cleansing. Now, if the Son is the true vine... And the Father's the vine dresser who prunes and maintains the branches. What do the branches represent? It's not a trick question. <laughs> believers, alright? The branches are believers. Those who have trusted Christ, I'm going to prove that to you in a minute, so hang on, okay? The branches are believers. 
What is the fruit that the branches bear? In this metaphor, the fruit is Christ-likeness. And that's the whole idea of the fruit. It's the being like Christ. Specifically, in this section here, I would say it's the commandment to love one another as Christ loved us. That's what He told them. I want you to love one another the way I love you. So Christ-likeness is loving others like Christ loved them. That's the fruit. That's what He's looking for. Listen, you know, I'll tell you, today in Christianity, the fruit is so many different things, you know? If you don't go to movies, boy, you're a fruitful Christian. It's got nothing to do with stuff like that, okay? If you don't drink, you're a fruitful Christian. If you don't cuss, you know, listen, it's being Christ-like. It's loving others the way Christ loved us. Now, he says in the beginning here of verse 2, every branch in me. And I think this is just another way of saying what Yeshua taught earlier about the mutually indwelling of believers in himself. In 1420, he says, in that day you will know that I'm in the Father and you're in me and I'm in you. We are in Christ. Here, the same notion is portrayed with the vine imagery. Yeshua is the vine, the disciples are the branches. The branches derive their life from the vine, and the vine produces its fruit through the branches. Now, the little phrase here, in me, is used 16 times in the gospel. This is why, again, I'm saying this is not a parable. Because if you were looking at this as a parable, you would say, in me doesn't mean anything. Okay? But this little phrase is used 16 times in the gospel, and in each case, it refers to fellowship with Christ. As far as I know, this expression is never used of a non-Christian. A person in me is always a Christian. Remember, this is not a parable, so the details matter. Now notice what happened to the branch that doesn't bear fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. Now the Greek word translated here, takes away, aro, can mean take away. It can be translated that way. But it can also mean lift up. In Johannian usage, the word occurs in the sense of lift up in several places, and it occurs in the sense of remove or take away in several places. So to me, that's a big extreme. Iro. Does it mean you take away or does it mean you lift up? Is there a difference? I think there's a huge difference. Now, those who interpret it here as meaning take away would be it'd be the idea that they take it away in judgment. Is not bearing fruit, it gets taken away. And they believe that either the believer loses their salvation, he takes it away, okay? Or the believer loses their reward or possibly even their life. Okay, it's judgment, he takes it away. Now, those who interpret Iro to mean lift up, which I would be in that category, believe that these branches get special attention from the vine dresser. So they'll bear more fruit. He lifts it up. This branch is not bearing fruit. In viticulture, this involves lifting branches off the ground so it will send second, so it won't send secondary roots into the ground. Now you know you've seen grapes, right? They, they're on a trestle, they're on a vine, they lift them up. You know, they don't want them laying on the ground. And if the branch is on the ground, he lifts this up and he gets it attached to something so it doesn't put down secondary roots. And lifts it off the ground so it doesn't, you know, it gets air. If it's not moldy, it'll be dried out if it's up higher. So I see Iro here used as lifting up. 
And since in the spring, vine dressers both lifted up unfruitful branches and they pruned fruitful branches of grapevines. That's what a, a vitic, in viticulture, that's what they would do in the spring. So, you know, this would fit the viticulture model. He lifts it up. It's not bearing fruit. And, you know, as you know, a lot of Christians are probably not bearing fruit and God comes along and tries to encourage them, support them, lift them up so they'll bear fruit. But watch this. Every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it might bear more fruit. Now, the Greek for prunes here, kathairo, means to cleanse. The word kathairo is used both in agriculture for pruning and in religious context for purification and cleansing. The word was used by Philo for pruning grapevines. It's found only here in the New Testament. It's another word chosen by Lazarus for its dual connotation. It has the idea of pruning. It can be translated pruning. It can be translated cleansing. You can see why it's translated pruning here. Because it's a viticulture model. So the farmer would prune away the fruitless branches so that you know, the vine strength would go to the branches that were fruitful. They pruned the weakest most thoroughly for the sake of bearing greater fruit. But most of the pruning during the year was the trimming of fruitful branches. Okay, bless you. These, bl- these branches are bringing forth fruit, and so he prunes them. Now, pruning people is not a pleasant experience. Okay? The severest annual pruning was to cut out, cut back branches that already were bearing fruit. See, grapevines are more plentiful. They bring forth more harvest if they're pruned. And so, to pull this into our own lives, the Father prunes, He cuts back the branches so we will bear more fruit. And it's not always a pleasant experience, people. But God's idea, God's purpose is to bring forth fruit from us. And so the pruning here may refer to hardships. Now eventually... It's going to produce faithfulness. It's going to produce a closer relationship with God, such as the disciples are about to experience. They're about to go through some suffering. And basically, what he's saying here is no fruit-bearing branch is exempt. Okay, The Father's purpose is loving. It's so that each branch will bring forth more fruit, but the procedure can be very painful. I think this thought here is very similar to Hebrews chapter 12, where whom the Lord lists, who the Lord loves, He disciplines. He chastises His children that they may bring forth more fruit. And then in verse 3, He says, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Who is the you in this text? Who is He talking to? He's talking to His disciples. He's in the upper room. It's a closed meeting. Nobody there but believers. So what does He mean by you are clean? What exactly does he mean by that, that they're clean? They took a bath recently, what's he talking about? Well, we just have to go back to chapter 13. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You remember this scenario? Yeshua answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Peter's always extreme, well then, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Give me a whole bath then. And Yeshua said to him, the one who has bathed, does not need to wash except his feet, 
but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So he's telling the disciples, listen, you've had a bath. You have been cleansed. Clean here refers to salvation. You've been clean. But then he says, but not all of you. Why does he say that? Judas was still in the room. Right after this, Judas leaves. So he says, you're, you're clean. You guys are clean, but not all of you. Well, guess what? Judas is gone in chapter 15. One writer says here that uh, Judas was the unfruitful branch that was taken away and whose final end was to be cast into the fires of hell. No, Judas was taken away not because he was an unfruitful branch. He was taken away because he was an unbeliever. Unbelievers cannot be fruitful. They just can't do it. They can't abide in Christ. They can't produce fruit because they don't have the Spirit of God. So that can't happen. He says, already you're clean. Now the term prunes, kathiro in 14.2, is the same Greek word as clean here, katharos. The entire context contains the evidence of true discipleship. These people are believers. They're, they're Christians. The term already is emphasized in the Greek text which gives the remaining disciples confidence in their secure position. Already you're clean. Making that real, You've got to get verse 3 if you're going to understand this. And he's going out of his way to make sure you understand it. You're clean. Why? Because of the word that I've spoken to you. Here, word is logos. The word of the living word has purified them. Logos here means the entire sum of Yeshua's teaching. They are clean because of the word of God. Now Spurgeon explained it like this. He says, it is the word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The Scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit eventually and effectively cleanses the Christian. And I would say, that's right, as long as the Christian is in the Word of God. The Word can't cleanse you. The Word can't prune you if you don't spend time in it. And so if you don't spend time in the Word, guess what? You end up an unfruitful Christian. Because you're not being cleansed. Spurgeon goes on to say, Affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the knife, but the knife is the Word. The Word is the thing that does its cutting because it's living and active. So Yeshua tells those who are clean, those who have believed in Him, He's talking to His disciples in that room, and He says to His disciples in that room, Abide in Me. Who's He talking to? Believers. And he tells believers, abide in me. The verb abide is the Greek mano. It's used 11 times in John 15, 40 times in John's Gospel, 27 times in his epistles. This is a major theological term for Lazarus. He loves this term. Abide in me is a strong word in the original text. It's in a tense that expressed a decisive command. So he's commanding Christians to do something. Abide in me. It's in the active voice. That's something which we are expected to do. We're being commanded. Abide in me. We initiate that. Believers are commanded to abide in Christ. That's clear enough. But what exactly does he mean by abide? 
Well, the word abide is used of dwelling in other parts of the Gospel. Yeshua is saying, spend time with me. Dwell with me. Commune with me. In other places, it's kind of along to follow me. Do what I say. Obey my commandments. See, Christians are exhorted to abide in Christ because this is privilege and duty that may be neglected. And very often is neglected. If abiding was automatic for believers, why would the Lord command it? See, some people say, well, Christians, all Christians abide. And if you don't abide, you're not a Christian. Well, then why is He commanding Christians to do something that they automatically do? You don't need to command people to do stuff they just naturally, automatically do. It's not natural, people. God never commands us in the Scripture to breathe. Why? You don't need to. If you're alive, you're going to be breathing. Okay? So He's commanding believers. Believers, here's what I want you to do. Abide. Abide. Abide in Me. So to abide in Christ is to dwell with Him. And people, I think the simplest way to explain this, listen, we abide in Christ. It has the idea of communion, dwelling, intimate fellowship. This happens... By spending time in the Word of God. Okay, listen. You cannot abide in Christ if you don't spend time in the Word of God. It's not going to happen, people. It's like, I'm not going to spend any time with this person at all, but I'd really like to have a great relationship with them. How do you do that? How does a husband and wife have close fellowship together if they don't spend any time together? There's plenty of husbands and wives who live in the same house. They have no communion, no fellowship. Because they don't spend time together. So we've got to spend time in the Word of God. Again, it's living, active, powerful. It changes our lives, but we've got to be in it. Another thing I think that is important is prayer. It's communion with the Father. Because I've said over and over, prayer is a declaration of dependence. When you pray, you're saying, God, I need you. And so if you're continually going to God and say, I need you, you're, you're building that communion. You're building that relationship, that intimacy. So I think it involves spending time in the Word, spending time in prayer. Let me give you one more. It involves taking what you read from the Word and applying it. Obedience. Okay, obedience. You know, you're not abide in Christ when you don't do anything He says. But how many Christians do you know that they don't really not followers of Christ? Listen, most, I don't even know if I want to say Christians, most churchgoers, and I'd say a lot of Christians, I've met a whole lot of Christians that have never read their Bible. They've been Christians 20, 40 years. They've never read the whole Bible. And I'm like, that just seems strange to me. And you claim this is the Word of God. You claim, yes, God gave us a book and you will scream and yell for the inspiration of this book and defend it but never read it. It's like that's kind of the height of hypocrisy. You know, at least be familiar with this. It's the Word of the living God. Spend time in it. Read it. That's why I encourage people to at least read through the Bible once a year. Know the Word. And don't think if you read it once, you're good. Let me tell you what, every time I read it, I see things and I'm like, it's like to keep adding stuff to my Bible. I never saw that before. Now, of course, I'm joking. It's always been there, but I just, you know... I never saw it before. And as you constantly go through, the Lord teaches you. He cleanses you. 
And so, you know, when we learn stuff, we're supposed to do it. Look at John 15.10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Obedience, people. You can't abide in Christ and not obey Him. To be in Him. Every branch, He says, in me. That comes when we believe in the Lord Yeshua. When you believe in Him, you are in Him. Now, two different things here. He says, you're clean. In other words, he's saying, you're a Christian. Abide in me. Christians do something. Alright, so being in Him is union with Him. That is unchangeable. That is unalterable. If you're in Christ, you'll be in Christ forever. There's no separation there. Okay? You are and have everything that Christ is and have if you are in Christ by faith. But to abide in Him is to be in communion with Him. Now this can be interrupted. This can stop. Being is the source of life. Abiding is the source of fruit. So we come to be in Christ through faith, but through abiding in Him, through dwelling in Him, fruit is produced in our lives. Now you've heard the term probably in Christianity, they got this little buzz phrase, no fruit, no root. That's not necessarily true at all. No fruit, no abiding, that's for sure. But it doesn't mean you don't have a root. Those branches just not being taken care of and they're not producing anything. A.W. Pink wrote this, Now abiding always has reference to fellowship. Only those who have been born again are capable of having fellowship with the Father and His Son. You can't, he can't be talking to non-believers here and telling non-believers, abide in me. And they're like, we can't. We're not saved. We don't care about you. Why do we abide in you? So many Christians believe that they're saved by grace and then they've got to go out and work in their own strength to please the Lord, to live the Christian life. But that's to deny the principles of grace, people. That's to deny the fact that without Him we can do nothing. So we're saved by grace. By sovereign grace. We're also sanctified by grace. You may have heard it said, if you're striving, you're not abiding. You know, some people take this thing as abiding as like, just let go and let God. You just got to kind of do nothing and float on God or whatever. But, you know, I don't think that's true at all. All right? I think at times, we have to strive. We have to fight. Christianity, there's a battle going on here, people, because the flesh and the world are constantly pulling us away from fellowship with Christ. Paul wrote this to Timothy. Paul said, I've fought a good fight. Does that sound passive to you? You ever fought a passive fight? He says, I've finished the race. You ever ran a passive race? This is things that involve some discipline, some agony. I've kept the faith. See, abiding in Christ involves discipline. It involves some effort on our part because we're doing what we need to do. We've got to make a time to spend time in the Word of God. We've got to set aside a time when we commune with the Father. We have to strive to live in obedience to the commands of God. Now listen, I'm well aware there's going to be some people who are going to you know, definitely disagree with my conclusions on these verses, and that's okay. We can talk about it. Because I'd like to, you know, understand this differently if it's possible. But I'll tell you, I, well, wait till I'm done and we'll see where we're going here. <laughs> All right. 
The branches have to make a deliberate effort. And that's why it's indicated by the imperative verb abide. We got to do that to maintain a personal relationship with the true vine. Listen, I know from my Christian experience, if I'm not paying attention, if I'm just going through life, you know, I'll tend to drift away from Christ. If I'm not spending time in the Word of God, if I'm not spending time in prayer, if I'm not, you know, tr- trying to apply the text to my life, it's easy to get away. It's easy to drift. Our text says, unless it abides, unless you abide. These are both third class conditional sentences, which means potential action. All right? You can't bear fruit unless it abides. Neither can you unless you abide. Just like the, you know, the branch. There's not going to be any fruit on the branch that's laying on the ground, separated from the vine. You're not going to buy, uh, bear any fruit at all if you're not in fellowship with Christ. Our spiritual effectiveness is linked to our continuing relationship with Yeshua. He says in verse 5, I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. See, when you abide in Him, you produce the fruit. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. So Yeshua tells these believers to abide in Him, and if they do so, they'll bear much fruit. Now Yeshua has spoken in this section of no fruit, some fruit, more fruit, and now He talks about much fruit. All right. So people, we're all in different places fruit-wise, right? But we tend to be hypercritical and we tend to be judgmental. And if someone's not bearing fruit like our fruit, then we're like, oh, well, they're, they're probably not even a Christian. Well, maybe they're in a different spot you, where you, than you are. And there's different, you know, there's different harvests of fruit here, people. But the more you abide in Christ, the more fruit you're going to produce. Now, the branches are going to produce nothing unless they remain connected to the vine. Because their life comes from the vine. Now, as far as disciples are concerned, they'll produce no fruit from themselves if they don't remain in a dependent relationship to Yeshua. He's the source of all life and productivity in the Christian disciple. He's the source of the fruit. Now, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you know, the literalist will take this and say, well, see, we can't do anything apart from Christ. Listen, you can do a lot of things, Okay. You can raise a family without Christ. People do it all the time. You can run a business without Christ. People do it. You can even be very active in your church. All right? And not, you know, and not have anything to do with Christ. You can fill your days with all kinds of activity without dependence on and without, you know, becoming Christ-like. But what he's, that's what he's saying here. Apart from me, you'll do nothing spiritually productive. You won't bear any fruit. You can't do anything that is pleasing to God apart from me. Because it's connection with me that produces this stuff. It's not you. The balance of the Christian life is discipline and dependence. We are to discipline ourselves to do some things, but we, we do that in total dependence upon Him because we can't depend on ourselves. Discipline is necessary, but so is dependence. You need to expect God to work through you. There must be a sense in which you know, you're conscious of His presence, knowing that He's there with you, He's strengthening you, He's empowering you to do whatever you do. It's not a question of your sufficiency. It's admitting your insufficiency. 
And really, no, no illustration, no picture could be more forcibly expressed the dependence of a believer on Christ than fruit bearing. That branch won't do a thing if it's not connected to the vine. And you won't produce anything spiritually unless you're connected to the vine. Now, you might produce things that in, the, in churchianity's mind are fruitful because they have some strange ideas of what's fruitful. But I'm telling you, in this text, fruitfulness is Christ-likeness. So, those who are saved are called to abide. What happens if they don't abide? What happens if people don't abide? Well, I've titled the message, Abiding or Burning. Because if you don't abide, you burn. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is a third class conditional sentence. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. Maybe you will abide, maybe you won't. The anyone here in the context would be any believer. Therefore, what he said applies to believers, not unbelievers. But some, in order to escape the severity of what is said here, say that this is referring to unbelievers. See, whenever you come to a difficult passage like this, you go, well, that means unbelievers. No, not at all. See, they would say that these fruitless branches represent those who profess to believe in Christ, but they're not really Christians. They're make-believers. Alright? They don't bear fruit. They would say that Yeshua, in this context, are referring to people like Judas Iscariot. And many people say that. Alright, this is he's talking about Judas here. They profess to believe. They follow Yeshua for three years. He went out preaching in his name, but he was never saved. And the Faith Life Study Bible takes that view. They say this Yeshua is referring to those who chose not to accept him as Savior. The dead branches are people who are useless to God's work. People like Judas, who chose to reject Yeshua when faced with the truth. Well, it's interesting that in the analogy, the, vine, the branch is attached to the vine. How is this unbeliever attached to Christ? Now, agreeing with the Faith Life Study Bible, Hall Harris writes this. We conclude, therefore, that the branches who do not bear fruit are taken away and burned are not genuine believers. I hate that when they do that. There's only one kind of believer, and that's a believer. They're not genuine and fake believers. Okay? They are those who profess some sort of allegiance to Yeshua, but who in reality do not belong to Him. In the Gospel of John, the primary example of this category is Judas. So he says, watch this. In reality, they don't belong to Him. Well, Yeshua said, you are clean. Meaning they're saved. Meaning they belong to Him. But Paul Harris says, they don't belong to Him. I'm going with Yeshua. Okay? To abide is to bear fruit. That's the whole context here. Judas could not bear fruit any more than any other unbeliever could bear fruit. He's not telling unbelievers to abide in Him. They can't. It is believers. You are clean, He says. Then He says, now that you're clean, abide. So this can't be talking about unbelievers. No unbelievers are there with Yeshua and His disciples. No one is hearing this except believers. Alright? So, 
Some say, well, these are make-believers. They're not really true. And that's what he's talking about here. And they're going, to be, they're going to be judged eternally. Well, then there's others who understand this to teach that the believers are going to lose their salvation. These are real believers. That, at least in the, con- in the immediate context, that view makes more sense. In the immediate context. Because they realize, he said in verse 3, you're clean. So now they see this as losing salvation. Now, but let me say this, and, and I don't mean to be mean, I don't mean to be insulting, it's just something I do naturally, but <laughs> let me say this, if you think you can lose your salvation, you do not understand what salvation is. Bottom line, you just don't understand what the Bible teaches about if you think you can lose it. Let me remind you of what Yeshua has already taught about this. People say, well, they might lose their salvation. Well, we're, we're in chapter 15. You don't throw out the first 15 chapters we already studied, all right? Yeshua says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The word gives here is a word of destiny. It's divine sovereign election. See, the concept of, of the elect, the Bible teaches the elect are a love gift from the Father to the Son. And so he says, all that the Father gives me, the Father's giving me these people, they're going to come to me. Now we've seen in this Gospel, prior to this section here, that believing in Him and coming to Him are synonymous. They mean the same thing. And he says, whoever comes to me, in other words, whoever believes in me, I'll never cast out. This is speaking of eternal security. Salvation is secure. Just as I did nothing to get my salvation... I was given to Christ by the Father. I was drawn by the Father. I can do nothing to keep it. I can do nothing to lose it. I'm eternally secure in His electing love. If any part of my eternal salvation depends on my power, my ability, my commitment, I'm damned. Because if I could lose my salvation, believe me, I would. And so would you. So we better be thankful. We're secure. He goes on in John 6, 39 to say, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me. Everyone that was given to Him, He keeps. But I'll raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'm going to raise Him up at the last day. He's not going to lose anything. He makes it clear. Nothing the Father's given me will be lost. They will have eternal life. He will raise them at the last day. If one individual that the Father gave to the Son failed to reach heaven, it would be a disgrace for the Son. Since it would indicate His inability or unwillingness to fulfill the Father's will. If you are a believer, you are secure. You can never lose your salvation. He says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Now we go back to John 3.16 where God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him have eternal life and they won't perish. And here He says, they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them Me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. Other Scriptures strongly confirm God keeps all He saves to eternal life. Romans 8 teaches that salvation is all about God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, it says. First Peter teaches that we are kept by the power of God unto salvation. 
So John 15.6 is not talking about the loss of salvation. Salvation can't be lost. And I don't think he's talking about make-believers in this section either because he says you are clean. He's talking to believers. Believers can't lose their salvation. So what is he talking about then? All right, hang on. I see this as talking to believers about the discipline that they will incur if they do not abide in Christ. I think the single most serious failure in the interpretation of the New Testament has been the eviscerating of the warning passages. Inviscerate comes from E meaning out and viscera meaning bowels or just rip the bowels out, rip the guts out of something. That's an essential part. And people do that. If they come to a passage like this, well, that can't be talking to Christians. If you interpret these warning passages applying to unbelievers, you miss the force, you miss any effect they have. I see verse 6 as talking about believers who won't abide in Christ and therefore they receive disciplinary action by the Lord. In other words, if as believers you don't bear fruit, if our life is characterized by persistent rebellion against the Lord God, then discipline takes place in the family of God just as it did in Corinth for their abuses in the Lord's Supper. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he started out by saying, you are saints by calling. He affirms, you're saints. You're believers in Christ. And then he says this to them because they were so messed up. He says, if any, for anyone who eats and drinks, he's talking about at the Lord's table, they were abusing the Lord's table, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You Christians are drinking judgment. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Believers in Corinth were physically sick. They were weak and they were dying because of sin in their life. In other words, discipline can ultimately end in physical death. Remember what our Lord said about the unforgiving brother in Matthew 18? See, forgiveness is a key part of Christianity. If you can't be forgiving, then you're not loving like Christ loved because Christ forgave us. And the Lord says in Matthew 18, 34, and in his anger, see, he, you know this parable, he, forg- he, he forgave this man. And this man went out right after being forgiven, grabbed another brother, and said, you better pay me all you owe. And so the saints go to God, and God comes back to this man in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. That is a horrible translation. Jailer. That's a weak, bad translation. I don't like it at all. The Greek here, Bosanestes. It means torturer. You think there's a difference between jailer and torturer? Doesn't have to be. You couldn't be a jailer who tortures people, okay? But you don't get that idea just from jailer. He's going to hand him over to the torturers to pay what was due for his unforgiveness. He's talking about believers here. A believer who won't forgive is handed over to the torturer. He was disciplined because of it. In the same way, when we fail to forgive, God disciplines. Now what does He mean by hand Him over to the torturers? I believe He's referring here to the physical and mental pain that God brings upon His disobedient, sinning children. So you can't really afford not to be forgiving because of the high cost of unforgiveness. There are physical consequences to not forgiving each other. 
There's discipline in the Christian life. You know, people, Christians don't like to see this. They like to see you're either unsaved and you get judged or you're saved and everything's wonderful no matter what you do, how you live, you just all go on fine. No. Listen, whose children does God spank? His own. Okay? You don't spank other people's kids. At least you better not. You get in trouble for that, okay? Now, when we had little kids, if the deal was if your kids come with our kids, your kids are under my jurisdiction and you, they could spank like my kids will. But I found out if you just grab your kids and spank them, the rest of the kids are like, oh, I'll do whatever you tell me, you know? <laughs> so you got to set an example, all right? But you spank your children, you don't spank somebody else's. And God did, spanks his children because he expects more of his children. There are consequences, people, for a believer who sins. And he says here, what happens? He's thrown into the fire and burned. And Christians go crazy. Oh, man, look at that's hell. Is Yeshua saying that if his disciples don't abide in him, they'll burn in hell forever? Is he saying that? No. The context of this verse is Yeshua telling his disciples, remember Judas is gone, His disciples, who he says are clean about bearing fruit for him. He's not talking about a group that includes unsaved people. If his disciples don't abide in him, they're disciplined. You say, well, thrown into fire, that sounds like hell. What does fire represent here? This is a figure. He's using a metaphor from viticulture, and he's trying to explain figuratively what happens because this is what happens in viticulture the vines that don't bear fruit they're cut off they're they're thrown by the side and then they're burned so that's what that's the picture that's what happens had Yeshua been speaking to a crowd that included unsaved maybe this fire would be talking about the fires of AD 70 the judgment came on Jerusalem but given the context and his audience being Yeshua's saved disciples I think this fire is one that speaks of discipline Listen, believers, fire is a common symbol that occurs throughout Scripture to designate the judgment of both believers and unbelievers. So understanding it in that way, then our Lord is talking about disciplinary action made necessary because those who are in the vine, they're not producing fruit. They're not abiding. And He's told them to abide. It's a commandment. And if they don't abide, they're going to be judged. Look what Jude said, save others by snatching them out of the fire. He's saying these believers are seriously endangered because they're in the fire and these other fellow believers have to go and actively snatch them, pull them out of the fire before they get burnt. The fire refers to divine discipline. Now my buddy John MacArthur, he sees this passage a little differently than me and I guess you can understand that, right? John says this, This then is about the nature of genuine salvation. No, John, it's not. There's nothing in this text about salvation. That's not the purpose of this text. That is ripping these verses right out of their context. The subject of John 15.6 is the bearing of fruit and not eternal life. The burning is a judgment upon fruitlessness, not abandonment to eternal destruction. The mention of fire is incidental. Because it's part of viticulture. This is what would happen in viticulture. Yeshua's point was that some Christians are useless to God just as these branches are useless to the vine growers. Because they're not producing fruit. They're not Christ's likeness. And listen, 
It's damaging to Christianity for people who are not producing fruit and they tell everybody they're Christians. Because people look at these people and they judge Christianity based on these people. I work with the man. Oh, he talked about Christ all the time. He was one of the most ungodly people. I went up to him and I said, would you do me a favor? He said, what's that? I said, shut your mouth about Christ. He was shocked. I said, you live like a pagan and talk like a Christian. I said, you're confusing people. You're hurting the cause of Christianity. Shut up. Because it's damaging. If you're going to talk about Christ, then have people look at you and say, well, that's what a Christian does. That's how Christian lives. Because they're going to judge Christianity. They're going to judge Christ. They're going to judge the Bible by you. Many interpreters have taken verse 6 as an exposition of verse 2. You know, the branches are taken away because they're unfruitful. But in viticulture, the process that Yeshua described in verse 6 took place in the fall, whereas the process mentioned in verse 2 took place in the spring. And so understanding the metaphor helps us understand the parts of the metaphor. Believers, if you've trusted Christ, you are called to abide in Him. That means to have fellowship with Him, to spend time in the Word of God, to spend time in prayer, to live an obedient life. And if we fail to do this, then there's discipline. Now, you know, don't think of this as, if I don't read my Bible one day, I'll wake up six the next day. No, it's not. Listen, God is not some legalistic monster, you know, who every time you slip up, He's going to come down and slap you. He loves you. He wants you to produce fruit. And then when the branches, He'll lift it up and encourage it to bear move. But if you continue to be obstinate, you know, as a Christian, you won't spend time in the Word of God. You're not in prayer. You're not trying to live obediently. You just go and kind of do your own thing. You lie like other people. You steal like other people. You just live like the world. You're going to be disciplined. Because He's telling His disciples here, He's teaching His followers, you need to abide in Me or you're going to burn. There's going to be discipline for disobedience. And we've got to take this passage and separate it from from doctrinal teaching on eternal life because this is not telling us how to have eternal life. It's not telling us how to keep eternal life. It's not about loss of anything. It's about fruit bearing. It's it's written for Christians and Christians are to bear fruit and when Christians don't bear fruit, there is discipline. Because the Father loves us. He doesn't want us to defame His name. Abide in me, He says. It's a command, people. To all of us. A continual, we need to continually be abiding. It takes effort. It takes discipline on our part. And many people, many Christians fail to abide because they just, they don't have pruning. They don't have other believers in their life to encourage them, to support them. They don't have what it takes. They don't have a church home. They just don't have what it takes. And so they just drift away. And there's discipline. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the truth of Your Word. Lord, I know that many are going to see this text differently than I do. And I pray that we'd be able to discuss it We'd be able to debate it. We'd be able to look at the very text itself and pull it apart to, to find out what exactly is this saying. Lord, I see this as a warning to your people. You need to abide. You need to take seriously the relationship that we have with our Savior. 
Father, I pray that we would, as your children, love you. And that love would be reflected in our obedience to your commands, to our abiding in you, to our total communion with you, Lord, that you are all that matters to us. You are the driving force of our life. Thank you for your grace with us. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Continue to encourage us, I pray through your word. Amen. Okay. Questions? Comments? You got that? Nobody? <laughs> Jeff? I assume... Um, Don't assume. All the, all the references of the same type of cutting out in the Gospels, I guess, would be different because of the different audience? Okay, thanks. That's a good question. Yes. If you compare the language here to Matthew 3, where the Lord's addressing the Pharisees, the language is almost identical. Okay? But the audience is totally different. All right? The audience is totally different. And listen, I could go along with the idea that in this text, the, the fire he's talking about is AD 70. Okay? The Christians that don't abide are going to go back to Judaism and thus be judged with Judaism. That, it could go that way, but I, I think that isolates it too much. I think it's, it's broader than that, and I think it, it's timeless. It, it goes to all believers are called to abide in Him. We're all called to bear fruit. It's not just those disciples there that need to bear fruit. We need to bear fruit. Okay? It pleases the Lord. So yes, there's many illustrations that you'll read throughout the Gospels of this branches that aren't bearing fruit and are thrown into fire. And you've got to find in context, what's, what's he talking about? Who's he talking to? You know, every time we see fire, we just manly, you know, ah, they're going to hell. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, hell's not even a biblical word, so don't go there. Literally. All right, I think this, you know, I think it's a difficult passage, and there's a lot of different opinions on it. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's convenient and easy to say, these are make-believers. Because, you know, most people who understand salvation are not going to say they lose their salvation. Okay, so they skip that. So they must say, these got to be unbelievers. But I, in the context, with verse 3, him telling them, you are clean. He doesn't just say, abide to me. He makes a very point of saying, you're clean. Now abide. The text is strong, I think. 